Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine what we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about sex and sexual anatomy and possibly swear words. Oh. Orgasms. If you're watching television or movies, how often do you see heterosexual penis and vagina sex result in dramatic orgasms by the woman? Maybe like 99% of the time? Most porn, movies, and TV lead us to think that women have orgasms from having penises thrust into them with no mention of or attention to the clitoris. How often do you think it happens that way in real life? The statistic I've heard is that 25% of cisgender women have orgasms from penile penetration alone. But is that even true? Where does that information come from? That's the topic of today's podcast. Is that 25% an accurate number? This episode will explore the research on orgasms to find out. But first, welcome to the first episode of Do We Know Things? My name is Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton. I'm a psychology professor and sex educator, and I'm so excited to share with you as I dive into the world of sexual misconceptions, myths, and truths. So what can you expect from this podcast? I teach university courses on human sexuality, and one of my favorite things to do in those courses is to get students to do research on misconceptions that they or other people might have about sex, or to dig into controversies in sex research. While sex can be an amazing source of pleasure and joy, sexuality is also such a fraught area of life for so many people. It's often associated with shame or discomfort. It can also be taboo to talk about. So because of that, there are many deeply rooted beliefs that people hold that they never really examine. This idea of examining things we think we know about sex is the goal of this podcast. I had a realization last year that often things I take as facts in terms of sex education are things I actually haven't investigated myself. I realized this after a student asked me a probing question about one of these facts. Specifically, he asked about whether or not there are 8,000 nerve endings in the clitoris and what types of nerves there were. When I started looking into it, I realized how much I didn't know and thus began the idea for this podcast. Since my 40th birthday was approaching, I came up with 40 topics that I wanted to investigate. Things like whether or not everyone has herpes, or why IUDs are safe now when they weren't in the 70s. You'll hear about these topics on future episodes. In addition to this podcast being a celebration of my birthday, the timing was also right because I currently happen to live with a professional musician and audio engineer, Jeremy Dahl. He's able to do all the technical wizardry and make pretty music and just generally make things sound nice. Thanks, Jeremy. So who am I, and why should you listen to my podcast? As I mentioned already, I'm a psychology professor and a sex educator. Starting when I was a teenager, I was just really interested in learning more about sex. I really read anything I could get my hands on. I lived in Vancouver, so I read the Savage Love column every week in the Georgia Strait. And whenever I could stay up late enough, I listened to Sex, Lies, and Audio Tape on Z95.3. Because of the expertise I gained through these media outlets, I fancied myself the sexpert in my friend group. Looking back now, I definitely didn't know what I was talking about most of the time. Fortunately, since then, I did get formal training, so now I actually do know things. I've worked in sex education in various forms since 2002 when I started volunteering on the Facts of Lifeline at Options for Sexual Health in Vancouver. 
The line itself still exists, and it's now called Sex Sense. Working on the Facts of Lifeline was an amazing start to my sex education career because we had excellent training, and also because I was exposed to so many people and so many different sexual things through all of those anonymous phone calls to the line. Sure, a ton of the calls were people asking what to do when they missed a birth control pill, but there are also so many calls on just a really wide array of other topics. I learned so much over those years, and it inspired me to keep learning. I also learned then that most people just want to feel safe and validated about their sexuality, and that's something that's really stuck with me. Then I went off to graduate school to study sex, stress, and hormones at the University of Texas at Austin, where I completed my PhD in psychology. I think it's important for any researcher to identify their position and their perspectives. No research or podcast is neutral or objective because no people are neutral or objective. We all come from a unique perspective that is shaped by multiple forces. Feminist philosophers of science have been writing for decades about the need to acknowledge this subjectivity and to identify the perspective from which we are viewing the world. Acknowledging that we all have limitations based on our perspective will lead to improved knowledge in the long run. So here's where I'm coming from. I'm a white, cisgender woman. I'm seen by most people as heterosexual, but I'm actually somewhere on the queer spectrum. I'm a feminist. I'm a scientist by training and very much an empiricist. However, I do value the work outside of empiricism, but my brain just really doesn't work that way. I was born and raised in Canada, where my family and I are settlers. I approach sex education from a sex-positive perspective. To me, that means to focus more on the capacity for pleasure and growth that can come from sex and spending less time focusing on the negative consequences. I think consent is of vital importance in all aspects of life. I try to do work that's trauma-informed. All of these things, and more that I'm not even thinking about right now, will shape how I approach the topics in this podcast. Related to that point, one thing I wanted to do with this podcast is to have every second episode be partially a peer review of sorts. Peer review is what happens for most research published in academic journals. A researcher writes something, it gets sent to other experts in the field, and then the researcher gets feedback to, hopefully, improve what they wrote. In putting out podcast episodes, there will definitely be things I miss, perspectives I haven't considered, and things I will just get plain wrong. This is where you come in. I want my listeners to peer review my episodes so when I do a follow-up, I can clarify and strengthen the info about a topic. I have no idea if this will actually work, but I'm going to give it a try. I got this idea from Hannah McGregor's podcast, Secret Feminist Agenda. Her approach to peer review is different than mine in that she invites specific reviewers to review each season. So although we're looking at it differently, I did want to acknowledge where I originally got this idea. So if you have any peer review comments, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DoWeKnowThings, or you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. And with that, let's get on with the show. Sticking penises in vaginas is a key component of the heterosexual sexual script. In sex research, this type of sex is often referred to as penile vaginal intercourse, and abbreviated as PVI. I will use that acronym to make it easier to say for the rest of the episode. I established at the top of the show that most media depict women having orgasms from PVI basically all of the time. Because of this overrepresentation of orgasms happening this way, when I first came across the statistic that only 25% of women have orgasms through PVI, I really latched onto it. It kept cropping up all over the place, and it fit nicely into my perception of how orgasms worked. 
It also worked nicely with my annoyance at the cultural obsession with penises as being the most important part of heterosexual sex. PVI doesn't really stimulate the external parts of the clitoris, so it made sense to me that most people with clitorises didn't orgasm from PVI. I incorporated this info into my classes and taught it as a way to normalize the varied ways people get to their orgasms. Now, I'm a professor and a researcher, and when I or my students do research, I expect them to cite their sources, meaning they should show me where their information comes from. But for this stat that only 25% of women orgasm from PVI alone, I never once looked into where it came from. Until now. A quick Google search led me to a book published in 2005 by Elizabeth Lloyd called The Case of the Female Orgasm. This was a book I had actually even used in my teaching before. Maybe this was my original source of the stat and I just forgot. I honestly don't know. The Case of the Female Orgasm is a philosophical exploration of many evolutionary theories for why cisgender women have orgasms. Early on in the book, Lloyd examined all the studies she could find that asked women about whether or not they have orgasms during sex. She found 32 studies that asked about it, and from that, narrowed in on 16 that had enough information to calculate percentages. From those 16 studies, Lloyd calculated the percentage of women who said they always had orgasms from PVI. The average she came up with was 25%. However, as Lloyd notes in her book, there is an issue with many of the studies because the questions often don't differentiate between people who had orgasms during PVI versus just during sex generally. Also, many of the questionnaires don't differentiate between PVI alone or PVI plus additional clitoral stimulation. In general, it seems there's not a lot of great data to help us answer this question. Today, I want to review some of the larger studies included in Lloyd's calculation. The first study I'll explore is by Alfred Kinsey and his team at Indiana University. You may have heard of Kinsey before. There was a movie made about him starring Liam Neeson, and he's just generally a big deal in sex research. In the 1940s, Kinsey and his crew traveled all over the U.S. interviewing people about their sexual experiences. They wrote a book called Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, which was published in 1953. In this book, the question they asked about orgasms was, what percentage of the time do you come to climax in the intercourse? It's an awkward question, but that's how they asked it. There are data from over 5,000 women for this question. It was asked for both premarital and marital intercourse. And for marital intercourse, the answer to this question seems to be around 75% of copulations resulted in orgasm. Maybe? <laughs> there are many, many tables in this book that slice and dice the data in different ways, so there seems to be multiple answers to this question. For example, if you want to know how orgasms varied on the basis of parental employment, Kinsey has got you covered. Based on the way they wrote about the concept of orgasm, and from some of the tables, I believe the intent of the question was actually the percentage of time the person had orgasms at all during sex, not specifically from PVI. Digging through the tables, it seems like the actual number is that 30 to 50% of married women report always or almost always having an orgasm during sex. Of course, another issue is that the question is vague and doesn't even include the word orgasm, only climax, which people can interpret in different ways. So, according to Kinsey's data, most women have orgasms during sex. But it's hard to know what these numbers really mean and what the actual percentage is for orgasms from PVI. I think these data aren't very useful to answer the question about whether or not orgasms happen from PVI alone. 
Next on my list of studies is the Height Report. This study was commissioned in the 1970s by the National Organization of Women in the U.S. It was created by women, for women, and definitely asked better questions. The book itself reports on both quantitative and qualitative data, which is very informative. Going through the report, it was actually shocking to me how much of the qualitative data in there is still relevant. It shows how far we still need to go to advocate for women's sexual needs. The Height Report gets its data from 3,000 women in the U.S. who mailed in questionnaires that were distributed via women's magazines, newspapers, etc. There's a lot of rich information in the report, but I will focus here mostly on the numbers. Based on the question, do you usually have orgasms from intercourse, Height found that 30% of the women in her sample reported having orgasms from PVI. However, she reports caution in interpreting that number because some women used what she called questionable definitions of orgasm. So that 30% number includes both people she thought were definitely having orgasms and those for whom it was unclear if they were actually having them. Also, interestingly, because people were handwriting their answers, there was evidence that some people were interpreting the question differently. Height notes that some of her respondents specifically said that they interpreted the question to mean all sexual activities with a partner and responded on that basis, not just on the intercourse part of sex. In the report, Height also included another question that asked specifically if people experienced orgasms from PVI with additional clitoral stimulation, and about 17% of the people said yes. That 17% was not included in the 30% figure that I reported earlier, at least not from what I can gather. Based on these data, it's likely that somewhat less than 30% of women in the study experienced orgasms from PVI. That number is lower than the Kinsey number and could be in part due to mailing in anonymous surveys as opposed to having to engage in face-to-face -face interviews. So there is likely more honesty in this format. A quote that stood out to me towards the end of the Height Report where she sums up kind of the themes of the data is as follows. As must have been clear throughout this book how tired women are of the old mechanical pattern of sexual relations, which revolves around male erection, male penetration, and male orgasm. And that was written in the 70s, over 40 years ago, and I feel like we're still having these conversations today. There were a number of subsequent studies that were included in Lloyd's calculation that led to that 25% statistic, but many of them also use questions that were unclear and don't really answer the question that I'm trying to get at. In the 1977 Red Book Report on Female Sexuality, 100,000 married U.S. women mailed in questionnaires that had been published in Red Book magazine. This was a huge study and has tons of data. Unfortunately, for my purposes, the question about orgasm was pretty vague. It appeared after a question about frequency of intercourse. So it might have been interpreted to be in the context of intercourse, but the actual orgasm question just said, do you achieve orgasm, dot, 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 all of the time, most of the time, sometimes, once in a while, never. The question wasn't directly about intercourse, just about orgasms generally, so that's not really helpful. Another major U.S. study was the National Health and Social Life Survey, done in the 90s by a group of researchers who traveled around doing face-to-face -face interviews like Kinsey did in the 40s. This study by Laumann, Gagnon, Michael, and Michaels was published in their 1994 book, The Social Organization of Sexuality. This study was a large-scale, nationally representative survey that included over 3,000 people. The question about orgasm they asked in this study was, when you and your partner had sex during the past 12 months, did you always, usually, sometimes, 
rarely or never have an orgasm. So again, we have a pretty vague question, not really asking directly about PVI. Yet another large-scale study by Janice and Janice in 1993 also asked a pretty vague question. In a survey of over 2,000 people, they asked the frequency with which respondents had orgasms during lovemaking. So again, not specific enough to answer the question I'm most interested in. Since the publication of Lloyd's book, there have been a couple more studies examining this question. The last study I'll touch on is the most recent, published in 2018. This study was done by Debbie Herbenick and her colleagues at Indiana University in collaboration with OMG Yes, which is an app that teaches people about sexual pleasure. The format and questions of this survey were refreshing after all of the older, more limited studies. This was an online survey, but restricted to people who were intended to be representative of the U.S. population. Before even starting the survey, respondents saw images of the vulva and vagina and had the different parts explained to them to make sure everyone was on the same page when they were answering the questions. There were a few questions about orgasms, but the one I want to focus on said specifically, which of the following best describes your experience with orgasm and penile vaginal intercourse? People could then respond that they needed their clitoris to be stimulated during PVI to have an orgasm, that they didn't need it to be stimulated, but orgasms were better if it was, that vaginal penetration alone was enough to have an orgasm, or that they didn't have orgasms during intercourse. In response to this question, 18% of women reported that they had orgasms from PVI alone. Another 36% said that they didn't require clitoral stimulation during PVI, but preferred it to get to orgasm. So in total, 54% did experience orgasms from PVI, but the majority required or preferred clitoral stimulation. This study is probably the most detailed of all the studies done so far, and if we count all the people who said they could have orgasms from PVI, the number they ended up with was higher than 25%. We've covered a lot of ground, from Lloyd to Kinsey to the Height Report to Herbenic. So, back to the original question. How many women have orgasms through PVI alone? Is 25% an accurate number? I would say it's hard to really nail down the percentage of women who experience orgasm through PVI, often because the right questions aren't asked. I think it's reasonable to estimate the stat as somewhere around 25%. When Elizabeth Lloyd was looking at the studies that led her to the 25% average, she had a different question in mind than I do. Her goal was to uncover the purpose of women's orgasms. Based on her data, I would say that 25% is maybe a high estimate, but based on the latest research, the number might even be higher than that. That's why I'm sticking with the average of 25%. So I think one question that should be asked is, why do we care? I think the reason that that only 25% stat became so popular among sex educators is that women are often shamed or made to feel less than if they don't have orgasms the way our male-centric media depicts. Of course, Freud is also probably to blame. He started the mythology that mature orgasms come from vaginal penetration, while immature orgasms come from external clitoral stimulation. I will definitely delve more into Freud in a future episode. I think that having a number that demonstrated that most women don't orgasm from PVI was a way to help heterosexual women feel okay about the way that they had orgasms. We live in a world where we're often told that penetration is all that matters. From my perspective, a key conclusion from the examination of this research 
is that even though in heteroland there's a heavy phallocentric bias, penises aren't all that important for non-penis havers to have orgasms. Most people need direct clitoral stimulation, and that doesn't come from PVI for most people. As Lloyd argues in the case of the female orgasm, the androcentric bias that exists in most heterosexual conceptions of sexuality leads us astray when we're talking about female orgasm. Something that really stood out for me from the research I reviewed was that I didn't see any questions about women's preferred way to have an orgasm, at least not for partnered sex. For heterosexual cisgender women, there's just such a heavy focus on PVI. So has this question about preferred ways to have an orgasm even been asked? If anyone knows of research that answers that question, please let me know. I think it's important to remember that everyone's sexuality is different. There's a wide range of what gets people off. That includes physical stimulation, psychological stimulation, and of course, the emotional aspects of sex. All of these things contribute to having orgasms. Everyone should feel able to have orgasms, or not, in the ways that work for them. Now, I realize in my breaking down of the data in this episode, I never really discussed the why. Why do some women experience orgasm through PVI, while many do not? It's a complicated subject that involves positions, preferences, penis shapes, and of course, the clitoris. I'll also look into anatomical research from 1924. This is a story that involves measurement, ridiculous surgeries, and a descendant of Napoleon Bonaparte. Next time on Do We Know Things. That's all for this week's episode. Tune in next time for part two of this topic. You can email or send a voice memo recorded to your phone, and I might include them in the next episode. You can also find a script with references on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. My name is Lisa Don Hamilton, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so we can figure out if we know things. I would also love it if you could rate and review Do We Know Things on iTunes. Thanks for listening.